Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Marco Schmidt, who is the founder and chief scientific officer of Biotics AI. Biotics is a company that focuses on selection of drug candidates using a machine learning and an AI driven approach. It's focused around causal inference and really understanding not just what are good drug targets, but why. And obviously, Marco is going to be able to explain this in a lot more detail than I am. We're going to cover genomic risk scores. We're going to cover machine learning. We're going to talk about drug development. And I've known Marco for a long time, so I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Marco, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank you much. Thank you much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. I'd love to start with with your founding story. What what made you decide to start the company? What was your focus at the beginning? And over the years, I, I know having started a company that you start usually with a vision and you need to figure out exactly how to get there. Yeah. So what is that story and, and where are you at today? Yeah, so the story of the, of the company is it's a little bit connected to my person. So I'm a biochemist by training, but I moved more into the field, what we call now chemical biology, drug development. And so I ended up with a postdoc at the University of Cambridge, so very close to you. And the first year I worked for the Billion Melinda Gates Foundation. And what I learned there was, we cannot predict the clinical efficacy, and this is actually the big problem in, in, in drug development in pharma and biotech. So this, you, can, you can pin it down to this problem. And 2013, that was in the first paper by Edward Skolnick. He was a former head of R&D at MSD, what you say in Europe, in the US, you would say Mark. And he postulated the idea of genetic support. So when the gene of the drug target is connected to a disease via genome-wide association study, then it's more likely that the drug will be successful, will show efficacy in clinical trials, because the, the drug target is somehow central for the disease. And this was then confirmed in 2015 by a big of analysis done by GSK, published in Nature Genetics, and they could confirm that the success rate is from 30% and over 50%. And this was then confirmed again by APV in 2019, and they are almost 60%. So what, what I only want to say is that this is just an association, so it's still very weak. It's like, okay, you have genetic support, and then probably you, you estimate that then the chances are much higher. So there was then a question more from a, from a data science perspective, how we can quantify this. And then I let my co-founder Jörn, he's a computer linguist, so we very experienced in machine learning. And I told him about the problem, and then he was very, very keen to understand more. And this was then the origin of the company that we wanted to develop. I, I call it algorithms, which can handle this genetic data to do this kind of prediction. Because genetic data in general is, uh, is what we call not big data. We always say it's white data, it's high dimensional. And this is a little bit not so much known, I think, in the community. A lot of, especially farmers, they always talk about big data. But this is actually not big data because the number of patients is somehow limited. So or the number of cases and participants is limited to 8 billion people. But imagine there are 200 million genetic variants where we differ from each other. So even when you look for, when you look for an gene-gene interaction, for example, that would mean that you have to sequence 5 million times the human population to just only to catch this, this space. So it's very difficult, I mean, from, from a statistical point of view. And this was, I would like to say, this was the origin of the company that we focused not on sequencing more people, which is, which is good. So I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate of sequencing more people, 
But on the other hand, we also have to invest in, in algorithms specifically designed for genetic data. Yeah, and I'd love for you to walk me through how the algorithms work at a really high level. So what what how does it differ from things like genome-wide association studies or polygenic risk scores that look at independent sites in the genome or or assume some kind of additive model? What's what's different about the way that you all view the view the world, view the genome? Yeah, what's different? So actually we do this as an addition. So it's not in the case that you say genome-wide association study does not make sense. So that it's it's a valid, reasonable technique. But in some cases it's, it's limited in the ways that you end up in the multiple testing problem. Multiple testing problem means that you have, I don't know what and one million SNPs and you test this a hypothesis sick or healthy then one million times in this the same data set. And then you end up in false positives. So this is, this is a problem. So the idea was that, and this is more from a high level. So if we constructed the knowledge graph and you're very interested in that, we take existing knowledge out of the public domain. Uh, and then we do create a shortlist and we just only test the interactions within the shortlist. So instead of testing 1 million genetic variants, we just only test 1000, for example, but then we look for the interaction. And when we see a signal, so when we can do with this predictions, when there's a good prediction possible, then we elaborate and we elaborate in the way that we look for what we know about the gene. And then we put other genes which have been described in the past in the public domain also into it. So it's kind of a learning model. So we, we check and then whether there's a signal, then we go on, elaborate more in the space. But when there's no signal, then we just discard it from the list. So that in the end, we only test 1,000, but this is a, yeah, I can say this is a burning core theory you generate. This is. Yeah. So to play that back and also what you mm-hmm. said at the start. So in the typical genome-wide association model, you, you described the difference between big data and wide data. So you've got the number of rows in your hypothetical data mm-hmm. frame or, or table is, is people and your columns is locations of the genome. So you may have in the UK Biobank, you've got half a million people and you've got millions of locations in the genome. And I think what you were saying at the start was as you then, if you wanted to model interactions, what does changing gene A and B at the same time do? Then you've got an uncountably enormous, it's countable, I guess, but an enormous number of additional columns that you've got to add. And there's no way you have enough people in the world. So you use some prior knowledge, a knowledge graph of some sort to basically select which interactions a priori you think are going to be more likely to be interesting. So if it's Parkinson's disease, it might be something like LARC2 and GBA, two known genes. You may believe that there's more likely to be interaction than if you pick two random genes or location in the genome. Is that right? Am I on the right track? Yeah. So what, what is the basis that you, you cause this an informed hypothesis you test? It's not that you test randomly agnostic every genetic variant. You just test then the combinations where you think this makes sense. Yeah. and. Computationally, this is the only way how we can do it at the moment. And I doubt that we can do it otherwise in the future. Not because of missing computational power. I just only mean because when you want to test these 200 million genetic variants and you multiply this with 200 million, then you end up with a number which is so big, which cannot be covered in the human population because it's, at the end, it's limited to 8 billion people. So this is a, it's a general problem. In my opinion, you can only overcome these clever algorithms. You cannot just say, okay, we sequence every person on this planet, and then this problem does not occur anymore. This right. is what I want to say. So here we are yeah. very specialized, specialized in the way. 
And how have you gone about over the years building the knowledge graph and those sets of hypotheses? What kind of data goes into building that engine that helps you pick which interactions to focus on? So that's really so the knowledge graph. So as a knowledge graph, in my opinion, it's a kind of, it's it's a better search algorithm because it's connected to every kind of databases we have here. For example, also PubMed. So there's an NLP component, natural language processing component, which can read the abstracts and then get an idea of what we can put in. And then the knowledge graphs just only give it in the way that it's digestible, this kind of information. But, but what I need to say is that we also, you can say there was an evolution in the company. So in the beginning, the idea was just, okay, the standard GWAS approach, this is just explanation. So p-value is an explanatory science. But we then always said, okay, machine learning, this is now prediction, which, which is a little bit different. So when you, when you, you can predict some stuff, which is, in my opinion, more important than you can explain it, especially here in science or in personal medicine, because you want to predict whether people will, will, be, will be become sick or not. But what we figured out and was the conversation with our customers, and need to say that most of our customers were pharma and biotech companies, and they are very interested in whether their drug target work or not, work, work, uh, that their drug target works or not. And here they always ask them for causality. So you can say that we, we started as a prediction company and we moved more and more into the field of causality now. Yeah, maybe you could talk through an example. I think you've published some a number yep. of pieces to work on this. What what would an example be of going from the, the the blank canvas algorithm data that you put into a potentially causal? I guess you can go and prove it in the lab and clinical trials after you've identified a, a candidate. Yeah. So first of all, so when when you look at these this very explanation, prediction, and causality, so Explanation, in my opinion, it's still genetic risk score, what you, what you said beforehand. So polygenic risk score is just an additive model based on p-values, you can say. So it has a strong explanatory component in it. And the problem is, I think, what, what I have, the problem I have, I see, and especially I see for, for, pharma, for pharma and biotechs, is that you have always a lot of genetic variants in it. So we have polygenic risk scores with 500,000 SNPs, for example. 500,000 genetic variants. But as a pharma and a biotech company, you're only interested in your drug target. So it's then more complicated to pin it down. And so our advantage in the beginning was that we had machine learning models that have the same prediction performance as PAS. Sometimes was better, sometimes was just only in the same level. That depends on the disease, what you figured out. But at least you have in the PS 500,000 genetic variants, but in our machine learning model interaction base, you only have 30. What makes it more interesting because now you see the interaction. And in my opinion, in the beginning, I was very naive. I would like to say when I have a model which has only 30 features instead of 500,000, this has some value for the pharma company. But in the end, then they ask us, okay, but, but what it's, it's, it's really causal, you know? And then we ended up in, 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 in causal inference. So causal inference is statistical methods where you can claim causality or you can confirm causality out of observa observational data. And the most common one in genetics is Mendelian randomization. So we were asked to conduct this Mendelian randomization. But what we figured out that Mendelian randomization works best in big populations, but not in the populations where our customer are interested in. Because our customers have more the focus on orphan rare diseases, Mendelian randomization. And this is more of my personal opinion. Probably you can discuss about this. You need at least 500 to 1,000 cases 
where you then generate summary statistics out of it. And then you can use it probably from a data normalization. But when you are in a regis where you only have, I don't know, 100 or 50, for example, the mentoring organization is actually not doable. So uh, that's why we then worked on our own cause inference pipeline, what we now call the trial, and it's hopefully getting published soon. It's now in revision. And uh, this is also very influenced by cause inference, but we're looking at other cause inference methods instead of mentoring organization, which is based on instrumental variables, where we took, we choose other in causal inference methods like regression analysis, drop one analysis, and the propensity score. And we applied this assessment, for example, to COVID-19 in the early beginning when not so much, not so many severe COVID-19 cases were published. So we could use this to claim causality. And here we figured out that for COVID-19, neutrophils and neutrophil axonal traps are a, a cause, a driver of why people have severe COVID and other they have just mild symptoms. Yeah, so maybe you could walk me through the difference of analysis that just identifies a correlation. There have been a couple of big GWASs on COVID-19 severity, and they identify genes that you may be able to go and do some work to to try to prove they're causal. But what what's the difference between analysis like that? What additional steps do you need to add or what do you need to do differently to arrive, not just with a correlation at the end, but with a some kind of causal relationship? It's a good question. It's a good question. So it's correlation means that you have a gene and on the other hand, you have the disease. So this is the normal, how a correlation works. And in, in COVID, so they found a gene and it was really strong. And in my opinion, it's just not, it's not causal for the disease. It's more an artifact in the way that in, in the UK, because in the UK, there's the best, you can say there's the best data available from the UK. And severe COVID-19 has some social impact, in my opinion. So if you are socially, I can say you'll be part of a not strong social group, then it's more likely that you will have severe COVID-19 because you do the dirty jobs. And when you look a little more closer, then you found that these, these social groups, there's an overrepresentation in COVID-19, severe COVID-19 cases. And so then you find a lot of these genetic variants and you say, okay, this is connected to, to, to severe COVID-19, but in the end, it's, it's, it's a nonsense correlation. Just to linger on that. So th- I think what you were saying was that different demographic groups or, yeah. or groups in the UK get COVID at different rates for a variety of non-genetic factors, right? Yeah. For yeah. Job, job choice and other things that are outside the realm of GWAS. But that is, that's really difficult to deconvolute from a genetic signal right so they yeah, you can yeah. you can get a genetic signal that's actually driven by something non-genetic i call it the trick in the whole causal inference world is that instead of just only having uh, a genetic variant and a disease you look for traits in between so you look what what is the effect of the genetic variant on the, what is the effect size of the genetic variant on the trait, and then you combine it what is the effect size of the gene on the disease? And when the effect size on the trait and on the disease is in a, in a relation, in a, in a specific relationship to each other, so it's, it's highly depending on each other, then you can claim there's causality. So this is, this is actually the mass behind it. So if you know that neutrophil, if you know that changes in neutrophil counts affect, or, or let's say you know, if you know the differences in neutrophils before you get an infection, I'm just making this up. You can give me a better example, but if that affects COVID-19 severity 
And then you know that a particular variant affects neutrophil count because you have some independent study. Then, then you can link those two together to say, we know this gene affects neutrophil count. We know neutrophil count affects COVID-19. Therefore, we've got a causal chain. Is that is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. So what I need to say, so neutrophil, it's, it's what you figured out. It's my opinion, a proxy, a proxy for neutrophil access to liver traps, which is a specific, well, it's a special type of apoptosis. Neutrophils can undergo this part of the immune system, immune reaction. And we know in severe COVID-19, there's an overreaction. And we saw, and I, you can say we know today that neutrophils, neutrophils, extracellular trap formation is actually as a driving force of severe COVID. And what we have done or what we did in the end is that we know about these components, the neutrophils and the genetics of neutrophils, extracellular traps. And then you can look for gene drug targets where you know that they have an effect on neutrophil cells. And we looked at all these pounds which were then tested against COVID-19 and we compared it with our analysis and there is the perfect match. For example, biotitinib, which is this famous small molecule, it's a Janus kinase. It's, it's one of the best inhibitors for nitosis. We, we found it in our essay together with the University of Bristol. It was also last year published in, in Cell. So it's, 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 you can really now simulate at least the pharmacodynamics within genetic data, which is, in my opinion, perfect. We now have now the, the, the possibility to predict the clinical efficacy within genetic data. Wow. So what are, the, what are the key ingredients of establishing this causal connection? Obviously, you've got the genetic data and the phenotype. What else is, is most useful? Is it literature around some of the mechanisms of how particular genes and proteins work? Is it biochemical assay? If you had to focus on the couple of most important ingredients, what would they be? I mean, here, here I see, see it more in the way that you can do this high spruce put. High spruce put in the way that you have the genes, you have, or you have the genetic information, and you have genetic information of so the GWAS data on the disease of the disease you need. But on the other hand, you have now thousands of traits you can screen. And to screen thousands of traits, you need a lot of computational power. But this is now this is now there and the data is there. So yeah, my co-founder, Jan, you always argue with ChatGPT, for example, with generative AI. So he told me, so actually the algorithm behind it, so they are 30, 40 years old, but now it's dual because we have the data and we have the computational power. And then it's exponentially, it's a completely new story. And this is here the same we see now in, in, in cause of this cause of inference in genetics, because we have now the data and we have now this computational power. And this is really making the difference. So former times, you, you had only the chance to calculate this causal model just for one trait and one disease, this one gene, for, for example. And then you're very selectively, when, when, you're, when, when, when you look for the gene or for the trait you want to go for. But now it's possible to screen 1,000 traits, so one disease. So it, I think it's really changing a lot now. In rare diseases specifically, you mentioned some some algorithmic challenges, things like Mendelian randomization, which we haven't covered in a lot of detail on the podcast, but I'd, I'm thinking about doing a little mini-series into causality and Mendelian randomization because it's, it's, it's a big and important topic. I'm curious in rare diseases in particular, you mentioned needing to take a different approach due to not having maybe enough data to apply some of the more traditional tools like Mendelian randomization is is it genetic data that's what's holding you back from doing all six thousand rare diseases or is it or is it other kinds of data that holds you back? 
for the hotel back. So, so in the, it holds it back because we are companies, so we are, do not have unlimited resources. So yeah. I will call it this way. I can tell you a little bit what we do now. So of course, we, we work for pharma and biotech companies, so doing a lot of pre-for-service. But on the other hand, so we are more going into the direction that we screen the data with our, with our approaches, especially in orphan disease. And the fantastic thing is now, so human genetic data is actually the closest thing what you can get to a real clinical trial in humans. So I see a lot of animal models and whatever, but animal models, to be honest, everybody has a successful animal model, but in the end, so when you go overall over all these three phases, one, two, three, and clinical trials, you end up with a success rate of 11%, you know? So it's 100% your animal model and then 11% in a clinical trial. So, but now with human genetic data and doing this at scale, you know, screening thousands of traits against it. And with all these data, you, you, you have now an answer. Rare diseases, here our trick is that we are not so looking in the first moment on genetic data. So coming to your original question. Here we have the tricks that we look at the biomarker level, and here we have done this with the UK Biobank, for example, so that you look for the differences in traits and biomarkers. So as I said, we looked for the differences between severe COVID-19 cases that might moderate, and then we saw that neutrophil count, it says that we see the differences. So if prior the infection, severe COVID-19 cases, they had higher neutrophil counts, and then you... You use in a kind of a filter a lot of these causal inference methodologies to pin it down to this trait. And then when you have the trait, then you can go in the overall population of all healthy people. And then you look at the genes, which has an impact in the healthy in the overall population on this specific trait. And then you can look, okay, this measure, this drug probably has an impact on this trait. So in theory, it actually also has an impact on the disease in the end. So we're applying this now and we have now in license two compounds where we think we can make the difference. Yes. Are you planning to pursue these compounds and try to take them through to what stage on your own as a company? That seems like a, a an exciting new chapter, a challenging one, a lot of new things yeah, to learn. Yeah. So, so one point I see is that you, in pharma, you have two business models. One business model is the so-called blockbuster one. So you have the patent and molecule. And this patented molecule has, in my opinion, has to generate more than a billion per year in revenue. Otherwise, you cannot finance the whole development of this blockbuster. So you need, you need the cash flow. On the other hand, you have after, after the patent lifetime, you have the generics. And when you look at the generics companies now, especially in Germany, because of the energy crisis, there's, there's a lot of problems because it's now much more expensive to produce these 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 generics anymore because they have the long term contracts. So it, the margin is not more there. So they they are now they are now negotiating with the government how they can go out of these contracts. So th the generics market it's extremely complicated. But these generics companies they cannot change the business model in the way as a, a research pharma company because they do not have the money in the way they cannot invest half a billion or a billion in a molecule. So we need something in between. And I see here now. This calls the inference a huge opportunity because you now can predict the clinical efficacy and you can predict it, especially in the orphan drug space. So, for example, for a generic, they, they can simulate within the data where there is a chance for a specific orphan disease and then you can apply for an orphan drug designation. And often it is so because these compounds are safe. So they are successfully passed phase one. So they are safe. Then it's, we only talk about what, what is called a pivoted trial. So it's a combined phase two, phase three clinical trial. And this is then some, something between 10 and 20 million 
for these orphan disease, and this is doable for these generics companies and investment, even when they are, of course, to at least two or three projects. That's the only they do not want to stick or put all the money on one project. So that, that brings us as a company, and I have been told that we are a tech bio company, so we are not a biotech company. So we don't do the clinical development mostly on our ourselves. What we do is that we screen all these molecules, look for often diseases or neglected diseases. Sometimes there's also patents available for these compounds. And then we work together with Mitzas Pharma Company, with generics manufacturers, that, that are really strong in this specific indication area because we are agnostic from, from, from a disease point of view. Uh, and we have actually not the expertise, for example, to go, I don't know, into cancer or yeah. ophthalmology and whatever. So for us, it makes more sense to partner it with these mid-sized pharma companies. And I see now this is, this is a really changing because this now brings a lot of new medicines to people which at the moment are untreated because it's not interesting for big pharma because the market is not so profitable and they need a huge market size. Otherwise, they cannot develop with the old pharma business model a molecule to target or to bring it to the market. So I see now something in between generics and the blockbuster. There is still a huge, a huge medical need. Yeah, and we're hoping. No. No, I think that's spot on. How long do you think the timeline is compressed by in the in the rare disease case? You get to go straight to a pivotal trial. It sounds like you're probably able to move a little bit faster in the early stages as well. That sounds like it might be a factor. You can get to get through trials more quickly and also with less with less. So you're much more faster. You're much more faster. First of all, it's important to apply for often drug designation. So make it that you know that you have freedom to operate after the approval. And often drug designation, first of all, you need rare disease. You have and you need an understanding of the disease mechanism. And this is what all brings this genetic analysis. It gives you an explanation. It gives you an idea how the mechanism is. And last but not least, you have to test in, a, in an animal model for this disease, your compound, that you can claim that the, the compound really will do, this, will do this job. After this, you can go into the pivotal trial and roughly this takes, and this is in my opinion, really, this can be done between three and five years, which is still, which is very short when you look at the normal pharmaceutical development. You all are based in Germany. You, as you mentioned earlier, you did your postdoc in Cambridge and you met a lot of your, your co-founding team in Cambridge. You decided to set the company up in Germany. I know embarrassingly little about the population genomics and, and genomics seen in Germany. We've talked a lot about what it's like in the UK, a lot about what it's like in the US. And I suspect a lot of listeners probably aren't familiar. Is there, is there a German national strategy and, and major programs in the way there is in the UK or, or what's it like? Yes, so I, I think we can make it short. There is actually nothing. <laughs> do you have a vision for what you're German, right? Is that where you uh, grew up? Yeah. What What do you think? If you've you've spent a lot of time in the UK, you've I think spent a lot of time in the US as well, and you've got you've got a presence there as a company. What What do you think yeah. Germany could learn from the way some of the countries who are maybe a, a step or two ahead, Finland, <laughs> US, UK, Iceland, obviously come to mind. What they can learn. So 
<laughs> so to be honest, Where do we start? I, I can't, I can't, I can't tell you now here my personal opinion. But then I, I guess I will have a lot of problems afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So what I mean is, so what I mean is, so it's the situation here is. I would like to call the Germans are. In, in, I mean, from their mind, they're just fat. So they, they have the successful automobile industry and whatever and everything else. It does not care. You know, this is actually my opinion. This, this right. is. So, and there's a lot of change now in the world. For example, we have, we, we have now electricity, uh, electric cars, for example. So this is, this is a huge, this is a huge change. And you, you, you really see these, it's a kind of this innovation dilemma, these famous books. I think Germany is a perfect example for the innovation dilemma. Right. So really really just their old ideas. Focused on focused on these other industries that have where Germany's been historically strong and, and less focused on building strength in yeah. life sciences or others. Yeah, but, but it's, it's even worse because Germany was the pharmacy of the world. So 30, 40 years ago, I think every second drug was was produced here in Germany, and the big the big companies, for example, Hooks, this it's not more there. So it's 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 a remarkable story about of. And we can say our failures, but so many reasons. But in the end, it's it's the many are on, on such high levels, and it's, it's at some point you do not care about it. This, this is my opinion. Yeah, I'm conscious of time here. Wrapping up, you decide to leave academia at least temporarily. There's nothing that stops you from going back in the future. But you you went from a postdoc to starting a company. What was driving that decision, and and also how how have you found now being in in industry like I have for it's been four or five years for you as well, right? What's what's different? What's the same? And how do you feel about that choice in retrospect? I would like to say academia is extremely small-minded. So this is what I also what I also saw in, in my PhD and my postdoc. So it's all about publication, and it's not about thinking beyond the publication. And this was my biggest problem because you do some stuff and then you're happy when you can publish it in a in a good journal. And what I also recognize or what I, what I, what I understand and what, what, what I understood then is that it is also important which, which kind of area you work you, because you can only work in a specific area where other academics also work because then it's more highly that you will be referenced, which is extremely important in academia. It's very artificial in my opinion. And the real impact is, is not having a paper. The real impact is bringing it out and that it's commercially successful because commercially successful means that when people buy for it, then it's valid. Then it's, then it's a huge, this is a huge success. Then it's just a paper out there. And this is for me a little bit frustrating because I can remember when I did my PhD, there was not the question how we can do good science or how we can figure out what is in a part of the world. You want to understand it. No, the question is how we can have a nature paper. So that was actually the question. I mean, this is for me not the way how to do science. That's why I see it here as a company much more interesting and much more challenging because you're also, it's not only about writing or doing science and writing a publication. It's also how you can finance this, how you can make a product out of this, how you can convince people to buy it. And it's, it's, it's much more freedom. And also I think what I, what I experienced is the thinking process is completely different. And it's extremely cool to see when, 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 when you, you just have you had your thought and then it, it becomes real, you know? It's a little bit like uh, Think and Grow Rich, as this famous book titan, for example. 
So this is a little bit the same, and this is very fascinating in the end. And, and I have to say, I have no plans to go back to academia because this, the thinking is it's not there. It's all about publishing papers. And this is a little bit like, okay, this is not what I want to do. What, what, are the, what have you found to be the downsides of working in industry? Yeah, the downsides, it's downsides, of course. And I think every founder knows this. It's, it's about money in the end. You know, you, you need that the business has to, has to be, has, has to work and you need the money. And a lot of times, you know, how much cash you have on your account and then you, you recognize the cost and then you can calculate how long it takes. And then this is your runway. And then you have to solve the problem of the runway. I think this. This is what every founder, every entrepreneur is, is exploring the one way that, that you need to cash. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really good point because what, what I've noticed having spent time on both sides is that both industries have the, the North Star that if you're not careful, you have to gravitate towards. Like you mentioned in academia, it's publications, citations. There are ways that the field measures impact and, and in a company the north star is can you build a company is it ultimately profitable make something that people want to buy and i think in both cases you can end up if you if you only align on those north stars and you don't try to think a little bit beyond that and have a mission that's greater than those two then i think you can fall in a big in a big trap yeah and also what i see is what when you when you start a company so you learn some stuff you will never learn otherwise so for example when, when i see people from a, coming to us from a corporate you really see that the real what it's what's 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 real out there so starting a company what is real life that because in a big company so they have still a lot of cash on their accounts so they can think about some stuff you will never think about it because for you it's not important it's important that all the people in your company will get their salary next month and they think about completely other stuff and that's why i'm yeah <laughs> It's a real life you learn here. Yeah. One of the things on, on the topic of academia that I've, I wish more institutions would experiment with is grant funding that is a lot less prescriptive around what you work on and is tied to an individual or a team and is much longer term thinking. Because I, I think you described the problem, which is you've got to, you actually are quite constrained in academia about what you can work on, right? It's you've got to get grant funding in the end of the day. And, and we could talk for a long time about how this is, but I'd love to see some of the experiments around just thinking about how do we fund basic science and, and things that aren't going to get done in either in industry or academia under the current incentive structures. And, and what are some of those things? Maybe I should look for some guests that are pursuing or working on these kind of models. I think it's, it, it may solve the problem that you're, you highlighted with your experience. So actually, I do not have the solution. So <laughs> to be honest, so I'm, I'm, I'm not. But what I also saw in the past when I did my PhD and my postdoc is this, I call it weak evil structure you see in academia. So you have the big professor and then you have the postdocs and PhD students. And what I see is a professor in the end is a kind of a manager. So he's also not mostly doing science in the way and research. He's more writing grant proposals, managing and whatever. And in my opinion, good science, and this is my opinion, would be better that you have just only more normal scientists, which are independent from each other, which work in an environment where they can freely collaborate with each other. Not in this very medieval structure that, yeah, what's called, so uh, what it's called, publish or 
parish. Know, puts, yeah, parish. parish. Yeah, parish. So yeah, it's a, that's the way. And and what it means, parish means that you become a professor, and then in the end you're a manager, and you're you're not doing science. So you qualify with something which is actually not in the end your job. So it's also a little bit a little bit strange for me. So and but the system will never will, it will not so easy from from inside. It will not change. It will only change from outside. And I see a lot of institutes more coming from you know, what it's called from outside. So institute funded by yeah, billionaires, and they are looking in another way. They are they have this more industry mindset, so they want to adapt this industry mindset. It, it's more common in the US. These these kind of research institutes. And in my opinion, we are missing this in Europe. And I'm pretty sure this will come to Europe after a while. And they recognize that these kind of organizations where it's more, where the people are more equal and they can collaborate freely with each other are more successful than I think it will, will be adapted after a while. Yeah. Well, Marco, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. We covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate your candor. I asked you, I asked you a lot of questions that you gave me your very honest opinion, which I really appreciate. If people want to find you, if they want to follow your work at, at Biotics, what's, what's the best way to keep track of you? Follow me on LinkedIn. Great. Follow him on LinkedIn. You can, it will drop a link in the, in the show notes. Thank okay. you. I really appreciate it. And, and hopefully we can do this okay. again in the future. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for taking the time to listen to us today. If you have any feedback, we always appreciate it. And once again, leave us a review. Please share the episode with a friend and we'll see you next time.